Good morning. Or as Thaddeus would say, good morning. I don't know how he talks like that for very long. His vocal cords must be like three inches long. I guess vocal cords don't really look like cords, do they? If you don't know me, my name is Max Carell. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, The senior pastor, Tim Bailey, is away this morning. He is at a wedding up in uh, Toledo, Ohio, and his niece got married. And then another associate pastor, Stephen Baker, is in Indianapolis at our sister church there because he's preaching for Joseph Bailey, who's Tim Bailey's son, who's at the same wedding up in Toledo. So we're playing uh, run around the base preaching today. Uh, Joseph's preaching in Toledo, and Stephen is preaching in Indianapolis, and I'm usually here, so I'm preaching here. It's good to have you here. If you're here for the first time, we welcome you and uh, look forward to getting to know you. This morning, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 55... I'm going to read the first three verses. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good. And delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Well, this text starts off with a word that we don't use very often. I think it's only translated in the scripture three times the word ho. And when we say ho, we think of westerns, I think. And we think of the wagon train about to take off, right? Ho! And off we go. But it's an important word in the text because the word is calling your attention to something. It's trying to interrupt you. And if we were going to have a word that we would use today, it wouldn't be ho, but it's kind of like that word. It would be, hey! Your friend's walking across the soccer field and you want to talk to them. They're going that way on a trajectory and you say, hey! Or if you were at the Monroe County Fair this past week and you were going through the uh, carnival area, right? Do you know what a barker is? Do any of you know what a barker is? It's not a term we use much anymore, but a barker is one of those guys those carnies that stand out by the, the little portable booths with all the dolls up on the walls, and you can squirt the water into the clown and get the balloon to explode, or you can shoot the, shoot the uh, 12-inch diameter through the 11-inch diameter hoop, right? You know what I'm talking about? Those are barkers. You're walking through the midway, and they say, Hey! 
come over here, give me $5, and you might win a 34-cent doll, right? It's a great deal. They're interrupting you. You're on your way somewhere. And that's the nature of this word because God's people here in the book of Isaiah are on their way somewhere. They have a need. They feel a need to do something, the need to have something. And so they're drawn and they're in, they're in transit. They're going somewhere. And God says, hey, stop. Change direction. Stop. You're looking for something. I know you have a need, but you're going to places that don't satisfy. You feel the need, but you're not getting what you need. And then he says, everyone who thirsts. Hey, everyone who thirsts, you guys are thirsty. Well, if you've been thirsty before, um, you can understand this. I want to tell you a story about when I was young. When I was young, I grew up on a farm. And today, if you watch... Farmers bale hay on farms. They use these giant balers, and you get a, a round bale. You've seen them, correct? On the sides of the farm fields and in stacks. And you get a round bale somewhere between about that tall and maybe that tall, and they'll weigh between 500 pounds and a ton, I'm guessing, maybe a little more. And it's all done with machines, and so you have a machine that cuts the hay, a machine that that tets the hay and rakes the hay into a row, and then you have a machine that comes and bales the hay into those round things, and then you have a, a tractor with a spear on it that you spear that bale, lift it up hydraulically, and go stack it somewhere. Very few of us could actually move them manually. You know, maybe Samuel. On a good day. We couldn't move those manually. We need hydraulics. We move them to the place they're going to go. And so pretty much, it's the kind of hay baling that I longed for when I was on the farm. Because when we baled hay, we baled small square bales that were somewhere between 80 and 120 pounds. And we had to handle each one of the bales at least three times. And sometimes four, depending on what my father felt like. And so the fourth time would be, sometimes he would be in a hurry, so he would just drive the baler real fast and drop the bales on the ground so that we could pick them up later. So that's the first handling. You drive along with a tractor, you put the bale up on the wagon. That's the first handling. The guy on the wagon, or else you, while you're driving, jump up on the wagon, stack the bale, jump back down, get the next bale. So you handle it once up to the wagon, once into the stack on the wagon, then you drive the wagon when it's full up to the barn. There's a conveyor that takes the hay up into the, bar into the barn. So a man has to be on the wagon setting the bales on the conveyor as it feeds up into the barn. And then somebody has to be up in the barn taking the bales off the conveyor and stacking them in the hay mow or the stack for the uninitiated unfarmers. It's a mow if you're a farmer, right? And so you have the man in there. That's the fourth handling of the hay. My job was most... Typically, on days when we weren't handling it four times but only three, was to ride behind the baler on the wagon, taking the hay from the baler. The baler very nicely handed you the hay. You just had to reach out with a hook, grab it, pull it up on the wagon, and take it and stack it. So what happened on those days is that we worked when it was hot, because you have to bale hay when the sun shines, as the saying goes, because hay has to be dry. If you bale the hay when it's not dry and you put it up into the stack in the barn when it's wet, 
the hay molds and becomes worthless, or it chemically works and starts a fire, and that's always not good, right? So it has to be dry. So I'm standing on the wagon behind the baler, and this is what it's like. It's usually somewhere between 85 and 300 degrees, and you're walking. The, the, the baler has to drive fairly slow, or the wagon will jostle so much, everything will go off, plus the baler has to be able to eat the hay. The baler eats the hay, right? It eats it and then spits out bales. And it's a very violent process. The hay gets churned up a lot and chopped a lot and plunged a lot and comes out the back of the baler in these square bales. And as all that's happening, all of the dust and all of the chaff and all the debris from the hay just kind of flies up into this this cloud. And the cloud, if the direction of the tractor and the baler and the wagon is all right, the cloud is just this, 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 this... envelope that, that, that goes around the entire process. And the guy on the wagon is out there, and the sun is beating down, and he's wishing that he could, you know, have a little white cloud go over the sun so at least the broiler would be off for a minute. And then he's driving along, and, and he's in this cloud, and he's breathing in all this debris. And that's what baling hay is like. And he's sitting, and he's driving, he's standing there, and he's thinking... I could really use something. I could really use something. I could just really go for a nice cup of sweet, syrupy, hot cocoa right now. Now, of course not. Of course not. When I was growing up across the road from our our primary hayfield, there was a pond that was fed by an artesian well there was a pipe coming out of the ground about that big around, you know, three to four inches in diameter, and the water just gurgled up, spit up out of the pipe like a drinking fountain, cold, cold water filtered under the earth constantly. It's still running today, and I was a kid a long time ago, and it was running a long time before I was a kid, Right? And what you longed for was to go to that well and to get a drink because you were so parched and so hot and so thirsty, you wanted to stick your head in the fountain and just get all wet and then drink of the fountain. And this is what we want. This is what we need. This is what we feel. The problem is that while we're so thirsty... And while we're in such need, in reality, we have a difficulty understanding what we truly need. And much like the foolishness that would attend me desiring a a cup of hot syrupy cocoa on a hot day on a hay wagon, we have the foolishness of wanting things that will not be satisfactory to quenching our thirst. And that's how we are. We have a spiritual thirst. We're exhausted in our labor. The labor is our own indulgence or our labor for morality. And as the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes says, it's emptiness, it's vanity. The conditions are arid. And we don't have a canteen full of water. We thirst and we seek to have our thirst quenched by cocoa, by something that just won't work. 
James chapter 4, verse 3 says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend on your own pleasures. And this is how we are. We're asking God for cocoa all the time or whatever the equivalent of cocoa is. We want these things when what we need is what God would give us to satisfy our desires that would truly satisfy us and give us life. So we spend all of our resources on commodities that will leave us as empty as we were before we acquired them. Whether those commodities have to deal with lust or money or power, whatever. But God says, I have what would satisfy you. Come, I have what would satisfy you. God's word goes out of his mouth and brings forth spiritual food and drink for us. And so he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, to the Israelites who are wandering, all the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord, your, which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Now, there's a familiar verse in that passage that we would, many of us would recognize, and it's the verse that Jesus quotes in Matthew 4, Chapter 4, verse 4, where Satan has come and tempted him. He's been in the wilderness, and he's been fasting for 40 days, and he's very, very hungry. And so the scripture says in verse 3 that the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones that they become bread. Make some bread out of stones. The Son of God wouldn't have any trouble doing that. Is that true? That's absolutely true. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Here's a truth we don't quickly see in Jesus' quote from Deuteronomy. And that is that we don't live on bread alone. We don't live. We can't live on bread alone. Bread, so-called, is offered to us in many forms. And it's not enough for us, whatever form it's offered in. And this is why our text says that it's possible to buy that which is not bread. If it says it's possible to buy that which is not bread, and it says that that's what they're doing, what are they buying? What are they buying? Wasn't it bread? I mean, might it have literally been loaves of bread made out of flour and eggs and yeast and what else you put in bread? Seaweed, walnuts. Today you never can tell what they're going to put in bread. But wasn't it bread that they were buying? Literal bread? 
But God says, no, why do you spend money on that which is not bread? What he's saying isn't that they're not, physic- they're not buying physically, physical bread. What he's saying is that they're spending money on something that they think is going to satisfy their need, when in fact they are not coming to him and getting what they truly need to satisfy their hunger. And so he says, hey, are you thirsty? Stop trying to buy bread that won't satisfy you. What is inferred here is that whatever it is that we are buying that is not bread is the kind of bread, or not bread, that's not enough. We cannot live on it. Satan never stops making offers of bread. Satan never stops trying to get us to eat something, like he tried to get Jesus, who was very hungry, to eat bread in the wilderness. He never stops trying to get us to eat that that is not bread at all, or that is not enough. So if you take bread as a placeholder for all the things Satan offers to us that are not enough, just think about all of them. And just think about how he comes to you and he says, here, hungry? How about this? This will satisfy your need. And so he offers us comfort. Have some bread of comfort. Have some bread of pleasure. Here's lots of opportunity for you to pleasure yourself. Have some bread of peace. You know, if you just go and find the right environment to hide yourself, you'll have peace, and you won't have the need to have to live by faith. Have some peace. Have some bread of security. Just just spend your whole life working on that retirement portfolio. And have some bread of security. Have some bread of a good reputation with your peers. You know, you don't want to say the thing that's going to make them think you're a fanatic. Don't do that. Don't do anything, you know, too much. Don't go too far. Have some bread of ease. You've worked hard. You've worked hard. Time to quit now. Time to to lay back. Have some ease. Have some bread of convenience. Don't be put out. You have a felt need not to be put out. So don't help that person who needs your help. That's inconvenient. Have some bread of convenience. Have some bread of success. Have some bread of power. Have some bread of money. The list goes on and on and on. And he's offering to us bread that is not bread. It's not going to satisfy you. It's not going to be enough. Have you ever heard the phrase, you are what you eat? Have you ever heard that? My wife's grandmother was apparently bacon. Um, I think my mother might be dietary supplements. I'm not sure. She's eaten a lot of strange kind of, you know, they had these things that she used to eat to suppress her appetite when I was a kid. They were called AIDS. You guys remember AIDS? How yucky is that to think of now, right? We used to get in the cupboard and eat them like candy. (laughs) These are good. (laughs) 
I guess they suppress your appetite because you just eat a whole box of them and you're not hungry anymore. You are what you eat. I was looking on the internet about the, the origin of that phrase, you are what you eat. It goes back quite a long ways, a couple centuries, I think. But it was, it was uh, resurrected during the uh, 60s, during the, um, the baby boom hippie uh, 60s movement, right? It was resurrected, and we became uh, obsessed with our bodies and what we put into them, and all of the natural kinds of eating things came. And there was a woman at the time named Adele Davis, who was one of the leading spokespersons for organic, right? And so she was just, she wrote the books and she did all these kinds of things and and now you can read about it and some of the things that she wrote, I think we, many in this room would still see as gospel and many people would say, uh, many people in the nutritional world, you know, Kristen Wegener was in the first service and she was kind of nodding her head and laughing, but many people in the nutritional world would say, well, there's nothing really to prove that that's reality. There hasn't any been any substantiation of that, but we all think of them because we've been processed through that situation. Well, this woman, at a certain time in her life, she contracted multiple myeloma, you're familiar with this certain kind of cancer, and she died of it. But before she died, what she said was, when they asked her about it, she said, um, that she can't figure it out, but that she thinks probably that it was her, her bad diet habits during college that caused her to contract that disease. Now, how old was she when she died? She was 70. She was three score and 10 years old. And what does God say? Three score and 10, and if by strength, four score. That's how long men are going to live generally on this earth. And she lived three score and ten. And she was thinking to herself before she died, well, and telling others, well, you know, it's probably because I ate some hostess ho-hos during college that I'm getting multiple myeloma or that I'm dying now. Listen, I don't want you to think about that. I don't want you to get too much obsessed by that idea. What I want you to know is that her whole orientation was toward living longer and food. And what was right? And guess what? She lived just as long as God would let her live, and then she died. And I'm not going to tell you, don't eat this food or eat that food or anything like that. That's not my point. My point is, it isn't enough. Whatever it is, it isn't enough. You can't live on it. Because it's bread alone. And it's not the word of God. And if that's your obsession, you have no more to offer than that woman had to offer because when she lived and she died, she lived giving us nothing but bread alone. Okay? And you will not live by bread alone. But by the word of God. That's where you'll find life. Deuteronomy 8, verse 31 and following. 
Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. God's word is the true bread. His son is the word, the bread incarnate. And as we say God's word is the true bread, we're, we, we see the first letters of the words bread and word suddenly become capitalized because we realize that in the incarnation, God became man. And that bread out of heaven is, is, is embodied in Jesus Christ. And he brings to us life. And that there is no life without that bread. No other bread will do. Nothing else will satisfy. Jesus says, hey! I am the bread of life. And if Satan can't sell you bread which is not bread if he can't get you to look at things that aren't bread and deceive you into thinking that they will satisfy your need, well, then what he'll do is he'll pervert the bread. And this is something he's done from the beginning. He's, he's incredibly good at it. And so what he does to pervert the bread is he takes God's words and he uses the mouths of, of uh, prophets and, and Pharisees and and teachers to pervert the words of God so that we're led astray. And so that's what happened with the Pharisees. And Jesus says to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Why did he say that it was leaven? Because it goes through the loaf and it, and it adulterates the loaf. It transforms the loaf until it's no longer what it was before. And so Jesus is the bread. God's word comes to us. It's finally given to us incarnate in Jesus Christ. He is the bread that came down out of heaven. Every word that is spoken by God from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture is God's word to us, and Satan takes it, and he adds impurities, and he gets people to leaven it, and he gets people to change the loaf. And he uses this to destroy us and to lead us, and so that bread that was bread suddenly isn't bread anymore. And it's heresy. It's a lie. It's wrong. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That's what Jesus tells the disciples. They teach strange teachings. They teach teachings that are against the Scripture. They negate the Scripture by their teachings. If the Scripture says, honor your father and mother and take care of them in their old age, the Pharisees will make it so that they don't have to. And they'll say that my, 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 my wealth is Corban. It's given to God. It's given to the, to the church. And therefore, I don't have to honor my parents with it anymore. Because I found a higher place for it. But God didn't say give it to them as, as a higher place by, by, uh, by dedicating all your wealth to the temple. God said take care of your parents. He had provisions for the temple as well, but he said take care of your parents. But they negated that. And they destroyed God's word. And it was leaven. And it was adulterated. There's always people 
in the world, there are always leaders, there are always pastors, there are always evangelists, there are always teachers in the church who are adulterating the bread, messing with the recipe, changing the recipe so that it's not bread anymore. And they lead many astray, and they're led out of life. And I'm not talking about just, you know, the Jehovah Witnesses that came to my door a week ago. And they did. Right? So you look at Jehovah Witnesses and you say, you don't believe the truth and please stop believing what you believe and believe the truth and please don't go to anybody else's house and tell them the lies that you're telling them. You say all the things you say to the Jehovah Witnesses at the door and then they say, do you want us to put you on our do not come by list? Yes. Do not come by. Right? But they're Jehovah Witnesses and you know, everybody thinks that Jehovah Witnesses are wrong, right? Most people still today think that Jehovah Witnesses are wrong. They've taken God's word, but they've, they've corrupted it at places that were, that were so obvious. They weren't even careful. They weren't even very seductive about their corruptions, Right? But do other corruptions take place today? Have other corruptions taken place since the Pharisees were, were spoken of by Jesus? You're familiar with the hymn, The Church is One Foundation, and the verse that starts, Though with a scornful wonder we see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. And what caused Samuel Stone to write this in the 1860s? Well, he was responding to a heretic. In fact, he was in his response, he was motivated to write a whole series of songs uh, based on the Apostles' Creed, I think. And so he wrote a series of hymns, I think there were 12, based on the Apostles' Creed. I was reading about this and it was fascinating. But what was he writing the church's one foundation in response to? Particularly in response to a heretic whose name was John Colenso. And what were John Colenso's heresies? Well, first of all, he said that he thought maybe polygamy was okay. All right, so we're not going to have any argument about that probably this morning. We've settled that issue when we told those Mormons that they couldn't be polygamous, right? You're not really having debates with people about whether polygamy is okay, are you? Has anybody been coming to you, and is that like the, the subject of a lot of the, the book studies that you're involved in? Yes, I'm in the Is Polygamy Okay book study. In, if it were going to happen, it'd be Bloomington. I know. I know this is where it would be. But it's not likely. What else did this guy believe? Well, he believed that the unconverted didn't go to hell. Now, you're cutting pretty close there, aren't you? Anybody out there today saying that there's no such place as hell for the unconverted? You're still probably not in a book study about it, but it's happening all around you all the time. And it's a constant refrain that there is no hell, that God could never send people to hell, that that could never be. But that was his heresy. The church's one foundation was written in response to it. What was another heresy that he had? (laughs) 
If you've been following Pastor Bailey's blog, he's been writing in response to a seminary guy who's been talking about uh, a group of hominids, men that, a group of people that existed instead of a literal particular Adam and a little, literal particular Eve. And what you find out is this guy also believed that there were more than one Adam and Eve. And so things that are happening 150 years ago, things that were happening 2,000 years ago, things that were happening all through the history of mankind are happening today. Satan hasn't changed looking at somebody and saying, has God really said? That's what he says to Eve. Did God really say that? And all through the, the, the history of man, that's what we've been tempted with, constantly tempted, constantly being told, God hasn't said this, God hasn't said this, God hasn't said this, and God's word has been adulterated, it's been polluted, it's been filled with leaven, it's been changed so that it's no longer food for us. And I think what happens is we don't think You know, I say hell, and I say literal Adam, and then I don't even get into anthropology. I don't get into man and woman. I don't get into sexual sins. I don't get into authority. I don't get into any number of things. And let me tell you, these are all being proposed in a way that's been filled with leaven and adulterated. That's how they're being taught everywhere you go all across the country, all around the world. God's word is under constant, constant revision by men who are under the influence of Satan. And they're pitching it to you constantly, constantly, constantly. This is what you hear all the time. It has not changed. If Satan can't get you with bread that's not bread, just straight out of the oven, whatever he's offering you, he'll get you by taking God's word and adulterating it and changing it and rendering it ineffective in your life and it won't be any good for you. We cannot live by bread alone. And God says, I have what you need. If you're thirsty, come. Don't go buying that bread that's not bread. I'll give you my word. And it will satisfy you. It will keep you alive. I'll give you my son. He will come down as the bread out of heaven, bringing life to you. And you know, you don't even have to pay for it. You don't have to pay for it. There's no money needed. You can come and buy it without money. Now, if somebody says we can buy something without money, typically what we think is, okay, it's either the leftover dregs from the Encore sale, right, that they would be glad for us to pick up so that they don't have to take it to Goodwill, or they only take credit. But neither of those is the case here. God has made an offering to us of a precious, precious gift. And it's a gift that the reason it says it's without money is because there's no way we could pay for it anyway. 
There's four things that Matthew Henry says about this, buying without money and without price. He says that, first of all, buying without money intimates that the gifts offered us are invaluable and such as no price can be set upon them. You can't set a price on life given to us through the bread that came down out of heaven. It's just impossible to set a price on it. There isn't anything. You could take all of creation, you could take the entire universe, that which we think we know and that which we don't think we know, anything that exists, and put it against Christ, and it would not register. It would not register as being in the economy at all. Secondly, he says that he who offers them has, doesn't have any need of us, nor of any returns we can make him. He, does, he makes us these proposals not because he has an occasion to sell, but because he has a disposition to give. God doesn't need an exchange of money. He's not looking to amass some wealth. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need whatever we have. He's offering Christ as a gift. He's offering his word as a gift. He's offering... Uh, satisfaction to our need, life, sustenance as a gift to us. Third, he says, the things offered are already brought and paid for. Christ purchased them at full value, and the price was not money but his own blood. And so this gift God gives us was paid for with the only thing that could be set against it in value, and that was the gift itself. The gift paid for the gift. Do you understand? And for what shall what we shall be welcome, I'm sorry, that we shall be welcome to the benefits of the promise, though we are utterly unworthy of them, and cannot make a tender or produce any money of anything that looks like a valuable consideration. We ourselves are not of any value, nor is anything we have or can do, and we must own it or fess up that if Christ in heaven is ours, we may see ourselves forever indebted to free grace. It is God's gift to us. And there's no way around it, and there's nothing we can do, and I don't care if you say, but a God, I'll give you this, but God, I'll put up this, I'll bring this to the equation, I'll bring this to the table. There isn't any table that you could bring anything to here. This is an altar, and God brought everything to it. And there's nothing you can bring to it. It's a gift for you. It's a gift for me. And so are you spiritually hungry? Are you spiritually hungry? Have you sought to satisfy your hunger with the false bread that's been offered to you from Satan? Have you been deceived thinking that lies about God's word are true? And if you think about it, it, it once you start picking apart God's word, there's nothing there. It's, 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 it's his word. If this isn't true, then that part's not true, then that part's not true, or it's all true. And it is true from God. It is true. And so have you been deceived? Have you been seeking to be satisfied in ways that you're never going to be satisfied in? I want to tell you, God has made it available for you to receive bread. The real bread that comes down out of heaven. 
he has made available to you the answer to your craving. And the answer isn't anything that is bread that's not bread. The answer is Jesus Christ. The answer to the need for drink and the need for bread and the need for life is Jesus Christ. And this morning we have the privilege of remembering that with the meal God gave us for to remember that. We have the joy of being able to come and celebrate Jesus Christ. And I want to say that if you believe and understand those truths, if you understand that God has given his son for you, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you have believed on him and been baptized and have been added to his church, if you live your life submitted to his word, including submission to his son and to the, and to the body that his son is, that is the church of, of Jesus. If you understand and have given yourself to that, you are welcome to come and take. You don't have to be a member of this church. And you might say, well, you know, but Max, I was listening to Satan this week and I was trusting in bread that wasn't bread and I did this and I did this and I did this. And I would say to you, so did I. I know. God help us. But that doesn't keep us from being able to come to this meal so long as we recognize it's true, so long as we look to God and say, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. So long as we're not proud and denying it, if you're proud and denying it, don't come to the table. But if you're a sinner and you need God's help today and you need to have yourself realigned, reoriented, and make yourself available for God to give grace through his meal, through this, through this bread. And I know this, this bread isn't Jesus. This isn't his body, but it's his body. <laughs> it's not his body, but it's his body. I'm just telling you that through this and through you coming to this in faith, God gives you grace. God gives you grace. And so what he says about it is what we believe about it, right? And so this morning, I want to invite you to come, and I want to read the words of institution. Elders, would you come, please? Let's pray. Father in heaven, now as we come to this meal, we ask for your mercy and your grace. Lord, we truly need your help, and we need life. And we ask that you will give us that bread, even as those who heard Jesus say, give, they said, give us this bread, and Jesus said, I am the bread. Lord, we look for that bread today. We look for Jesus Christ. Give to us your grace and mercy, dear Lord, and help us, we pray, as we approach you in this meal, and we give thanks to you for it. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, Hey! Now, he didn't say that. 
But he broke it, and then he began to speak. And what I'm saying is that God's word also says, hey, this is life. Not the bread that the world offers, not the bread that Satan offers. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And this is what he offers to you this morning. What he did say was, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. He took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you come, elders, and would you start to come forward, bring your children for prayer, and let's receive together this meal.